Hi, and welcome to the SAP HCM Insights Podcast. I'm Steve Bogner, Managing Partner at Insight Consulting Partners. And with me today, we have John Reed. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm really happy to be here. This is kind of a bucket list day for me, Steve. <laughs> well, we, we'll uh, try to make sure we have some some good stuff here and uh, make it rewarding for you. Cool. Yeah. So uh, along with uh, John from the team, we have um, our, one of our newest official members, Sharon Newton. Sharon joined the podcast team. She's official now. She's on the website. So Sharon, welcome to your um, I don't know, probably third or fourth podcast with us, but your first as an official member. My first official one. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. Happy to be here. Yeah. I was. Uh, I think I was telling Amy last time that it's like the mafia. You can get in, but you have a hard time getting out. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Grubb and uh, Brandon Toombs, Mark Ingram, and Martin Gillette also on the podcast with us today. Hi, guys. Hello. All right. So... Um, you know, what we wanted to talk about on this podcast is, uh, and, and, you know, John suggested it, and I think it's, it's a great topic. We see it all, all the time, and I know I've seen it for decades, I think. It's the, the myth of the talent shortage, and uh, whether it's an IT or, or otherwise, I think it's, um, you know, pretty much uh, across industries. But, you know, we might focus sort of on the IT talent crisis and the myth of it, um, you know, John, you've written some articles on that, and this is one of the things that I think has been a, a, a pet subject of yours for a while now. Um, and I think the argument is that there's a lot of talent out there. It's just sometimes we get a little too picky about uh, or a little too uh, oh um, detailed about what we're looking for, and we, we pass up people who could actually fill roles Um just by you know maybe having some bias in in what we're looking for, did I get that right? Do you want to tell us what you're you're thinking about, and um, we can talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so just for your for your HR audience, I was struck by this because uh, I've been banging on this topic for a long time. Uh, we started Diginomica three years ago, but I've been banging on this topic since I think 1996 or something. But yeah, um, it was really it's really all about uh, how we think about skills and hiring, and it ties directly into Success Connect and the podcast you guys had last time on Success Connect, because I was struck by Mike Etling really going on stage and and basically saying essentially that the talent shortage is a myth, and really one of the first times I've ever heard vendors say that because vendors all oftentimes kind of whip the talent shortage into a frenzy mm-hmm. because it kind of gets everyone excited about. The growth and uh, you know it gets the consulting partners excited and you know everyone's ramping up and the, you know roll out the wagon of consultants and everything and um, and and I think when you step back from it and look at what SAP was talking about with the diversity initiatives and business without bias, which was a big theme of the conference, if you don't really rethink how you're going to source and hire talent, then you're really going to fail on those initiatives. You're you're not going to achieve. Uh, diversity, and then if you add in this whole theme of AI and machine learning and and unconscious bias, it makes for an even more controversial discussion. So those were kind of the themes I thought we might want to talk about a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the unconscious bias is uh, it, it's out there, but you know, because it is unconscious, we t- you know we don't always give it the attention that it's due. Um, you know. Mark, I know you've done a lot with uh, recruiting over the years, and 
Um, you know, one of the things that you've mentioned in previous podcasts was um, this sort of thing with with the bias and how you select people and, and all of that. And, um, you know, what I've seen, too, is in, in job requisitions that uh, I've seen from my clients is that they can get very, very specific, right? And mm-hmm, sure. in the recruiting industry, they call that a purple squirrel, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there's a book called The Purple Squirrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I do strongly feel that people, people don't make enough of, uh, you know, looking at people's, you know, broad set of, um, skills and, and culture and background and, and get too much into the details, you know, so just very kind of semi-recent example is, um, people trying to source success factors, consultants and asking, uh, sometimes even for certification, which, uh, which doesn't exist yet. Uh, for some modules and you know that's just kind of a superficial you know thing that we've all encountered recently but it is it is like nine you know it i I think i think the 90s were a good example of where there were certain skill sets like sap for example which you know influenced all of us that the skills just didn't exist and and, uh you know companies invested heavily in um in getting in getting programs together Mm-hmm. Uh, for getting people up to speed on mass based upon tangential skill sets. So, you know, um, in, in, in my case, you know, I, <laughs> I'd never heard of, I'd never worked with HR or done anything with SAP when I started work, working for SAP. And, um, you know, I had other, other interests, um, that, uh, that kind of sent, uh, it was what they're looking for. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. And I think, John would agree. It's definitely easier to to use a bandaid of contingent staff, um, which you know, which perpetuates the the issue of not having the right skills in house, than actually to build a, a proper uh, training program and also to really think about where else you can source people from a diverse you know thinking point of view. So, John, why do, why do you think that we're uh, sort of overly picky there, um, and? You know, why do we look for those purple squirrels? Why why do companies get so specific? Right. So there's a lot of factors that play into that. But one of the big ones is that we trace it back to sort of the roots of the free agent economy where I talked about this some of my article, different points on this. But uh, companies often hold back on making training a strategic investment, um, mostly due to the risk of losing talent. <coughs> But unfortunately, it becomes a self-defeating cycle. And so as a lot of this comes down to a tunnel vision around needing people to hit the ground running. And, and then, of course, um, a lot of the talent that could be very interesting to hire not only requires a little bit of training, but a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking on how to use it. So, for example, if you have a parent that has some responsibilities – that keeps them working from home, the inability culturally to incorporate that kind of person into a team, even if they can't be on site all the time, can be part of the problem also. So uh, a lot of it Mm -hmm. comes down to company culture and process as well. Uh, But I also, in the article, blame ridiculously fussy job orders, which we kind of already talked about. you know, and it's an obsession over the latest versions of products. And the the risk I see with this sometimes, and I don't know if you guys still see this, but a lot of times you end up with kind of a junior person 
who really doesn't actually have the depth of knowledge about HR or your industry. They just happen to have some experience in the latest release. And I really have a hard time wrapping my head around why that's a better hire. Yeah. Well, they check all the boxes, right? But they don't necessarily have the depth under those boxes to provide some value. I think that happens a lot. So, yeah. So, Sharon, I know you've you've done a lot with learning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something, John, that you touched on here is that um, – I think you said some companies are uh, they hold back on investing a lot in in training and learning because of uh, you know different reasons. So, I mean, Sharon, what's been your experience there with you know the investment in training versus hiring contingents who have some of that experience versus you know like John said, overly fussy job requisitions. Right. I think. I mean, I, th- I have a few points to make there. Actually, as I look back at you know working for SAP for many years, supporting SAP in the sales cycle for an LMS, um, going to different organizations that have different learning initiatives in place. Mm-hmm. Unless a company, and this is a very general statement, but unless a company has very particular requirements for learning, such as compliance-driven, utilities, FDA, etc., you don't always see a very robust learning and delivery organization that actually has a strategy in place and the tools and the technology to support it. Now, that has been changing an awful lot over the last few years. I mean, we do see a lot more organizations that are investing in learning and development, but I think there's still a large number of corporations that don't have the process, the procedure, the infrastructure in place to really bring people up to speed in in newer skill sets. Um, mm-hmm. I know so many companies that have SAP's learning solution as shelfware. They never implemented it. And they may have a few different LMSs that are focused specifically on, say, sales training or on R&D training, but they don't have a global learning and development strategy. Um, mm-hmm. I think, as I said, you know, with SuccessFactors acquiring Plateau and focusing on an LMS and SAP then acquiring SuccessFactors, and there's a very large push for getting that LMS out for customers, that that is changing. And Workday, just two days ago, I think, announced their Workday Learning is now available from a learning management system perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that changing. But historically, there's been a lot more investment in learning if it's required to do the job, not if it's required to invest and develop more junior employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, that's that's been my experience too. You know, when I've worked with, uh, um, haven't worked with utilities for a long time, but with an FDA uh, uh, certified company, the the training and learning environment is pretty robust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a uh, it makes me smile when I see uh, various customers where, you know, employees are our most valuable asset. And then there's a downturn and the first thing that gets cut in the budget is training. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just really, it's a, it's a sad thing to see because, um, you know, if you start out with the right talent, and like you said, John, maybe that means you have someone with the right skills and approach and the right mindset, but maybe they have to work remote two days a week. Um, you know, if you can't get creative and use talent like that, um, I think the I think companies are missing out on on a lot. When you have people who can be effective in their jobs, it adds a lot adds a lot to the company. I also have an opinion in terms of more senior IT folks who perhaps haven't retooled themselves and find themselves out there looking for a job. 
I think there are an awful lot of ways that those people can invest in themselves, which shows an aptitude. And as an, you know, a small business who employs people, that to me is interesting. You know, I know at our local library, if you're a member of the library, you have access to lynda.com. You know, if you can invest in SAP's Learning Hub, you do have access to that. So it's, it's difficult for me to talk to, say, a senior consultant who's been doing SAP for 15 years and see that they haven't done any investment themselves, but they're still expecting a very high salary. You know, so I, I do think it's two ways. There are a lot of opportunities for learning that individuals can take to develop their skill sets. That's a great point, Sharon. That's an excellent point. There's really no excuse today for um, people not to, themselves not to keep mm-hmm. up with um, changing technology and the, you know, the skills that are needed in the market. Yeah. Excellent. I have something to add just from a, a more of a talent development perspective. So as I've been working with success factors for, gosh, almost 10 years now, um, you know, I've definitely seen in the last couple of years a change in customers and what they're, what modules they're implementing. So for example, um, you know, until recently, when I first started implementing success factors, the development module was bare, anybody barely, you know, implemented it. It was, it was not that um, popular. Um, but I, the last couple of years, I have seen more and more companies with an awareness that they have a need to develop people. And, you know, putting in this tool to give, sometimes give them a start on a, how to develop folks, right? So kind of a platform for recognizing that we have these people internal, we need to make sure that they are either keeping up with um, what we need, or we're developing them from a succession perspective. So it's been interesting for me um, to, to run into more and more customers that have an awareness that they need to develop people. Now, that's, you know, having an awareness, I think, what is it? Admitting you have a problem is the first step to recovery. Um, so, you know, it's a first step, but, which is good. But I, you know, I think that companies definitely have a long way to go. Because to your point, Steve, you know, I've, I've been in the training world for a long time as well. And, mm-hmm. and it's always the first thing to get cut in hard times. And that's, a, to me, that's a very short-sighted um, view of investing in the people that you have. Because investment training program is a lot cheaper than getting people onboarded when you have turnover. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point too, Amy. You know, I worked with SAP's legacy on-premise technology for a lot longer than I've worked with success factors. But one of the questions that I used to get from customers, I'd see it on SDN, I'd see it when we were kicking off projects, was do you have like a canned qualifications catalog that we can use? We just want to plug that in. You know, or how long is it going to take us to implement qualifications? You know, the answer is it, it probably would take you five hours to implement qualifications in SAP. It's one of the simpler things to get going. But that doesn't mean you're going to use it. That doesn't mean that it's going to drive to the behaviors, the competencies, the skills, what you as an organization value and want to develop within your employees. So it's really making that investment in 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 what matters to you as an organization and what kind of culture and engagement that you want to develop, um, not just, just putting the data out there. I can count on two hands the number of dead quals catalogs I've seen in my consulting career. People with thousands of quals that aren't being used because they just put them in there and walked away. 
isn't it also due to the fact, guys, that uh, the attitude and the mindset of the people have changed? They've been empowered by uh, the companies and their customers. They've been trusted maybe even more to develop their own career paths and to learn. I mean, if you compare, like you say, the, the learning tool we had a few years ago, a decade ago, uh, mm -hmm. it was basically pretty strict, pretty formal, you know, computer-based training, online web training, etc. Today, there is a myriad of uh, information out there. You mentioned the, the astonishing learning hub. Um, I have also today, as an employee, as an individual, a duty to get myself up to date and to keep learning to do a technology watch through whatever channel it is. Um, ever since 2004, when SAP came up with the uh, uh, learning management system with their learning solution, we came up with the buzzword blended learning. So any occasion, <laughs> like today, listening to a podcast is a proactive way to, to learn and to discover new horizons, you know, enhance my networking, etc. So the key point I trust is also that employees have been empowered and they are also responsible, uh, responsible for their own fate. They cannot just rely on the strategy from the company. By doing so, you're missing a lot of the, uh, let's say, of the journey that you are just onboarded. Yeah, those are great points. And But you know, uh, something that comes to mind, John, after all, hearing all that is, and I think you touched on this a bit, was in your article, um, what about trying to attract the best talent, you know, being a, a, a talent attractor instead of going out there and, and, and searching for it too. I think that, um, you know, that's a, a big cultural shift for a lot of companies because to be a talent attractor, you have to promote your company and, and promote it on maybe channels that you're not used to. And you have to, you know, some maybe older, more conservative companies might not be comfortable with touting the, the reasons why you should go work for them. But um, being a talent attractor sure could um, solve some of these issues, I think. I just wanted to, you know, I've been doing a lot of um, research myself and talking um, about millennials in the workplace. And, you know, that is something that, uh, you know, millennials look for jobs differently than we did, than our generation did. Um, and one of the things that they look for are companies that are going to develop them. And, you know, they're not going to go after the job that pays the most money, you know, aside from, you know, looking at companies who match their, their social values and beliefs, they want to know what is that company going to do to develop me and my skills and allow me to make a contribution. So I think when companies are looking to be a talent attractor, um, you know, they, they really need to keep not only the, the folks that they have, you know, that they're used to. Uh, recruiting in mind, but they also have to look at it um, with a view to the people that are entering the workforce, who are millennials are now a larger percentage of the workforce than any generation before. So I think recruiters and, you know, talent acquisition professional professionals are really going to have to start in HR, you know, start looking at um, ways that they're adapting um, to the people that are entering the workforce. Good points. John, did, did you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of really good points. Um, one one thing that goes back to what Mark was saying is that a lot of companies, unfortunately, got this flipped on their head a little bit, where they seem to rely on consultants for strategic talent, and and then internally the hires aren't lack imagination and and, and they don't have that sort of set of core competency around talent. And the 
thing to do with outsourcing is to outsource the stuff that you don't really want to cultivate in-house. And so it's a really a mindset change. And a lot of times you look at this, when you get to millennials, you look at this thing around, um, are you an open company, right? A lot of these folks are involved, for example, in community projects, open source projects. They want to be active on social networks. If you have a question, that's where you go. Um, you know, And so I think a lot of it has to do with with realizing that you're, you want to create a culture that attracts and, and that people, you know, people are your best advocates. So if they like working at your company, that, that really makes a shift. I think the unfortunate thing is that not only uh, does training, lack of training commitment, like cost in terms of, you know, losing and attrition and, and such, but it's also a real key to project failure and disappointment. And the stats on that have just piled up over the years, um, so companies are quick to slash it, and it's kind of crazy given that the body of knowledge says – I had a stat from a few years ago from micromanagement because I write about training stuff every year for their survey. And um, um, Cushing Anderson um, of I think IDC was talking about how uh, the single greatest training need in nearly 50% of enterprises is end users and that both – you know, if you don't have those, it's it's the single most important factor in upgrade or deployment projects to meeting business objectives to have that training. And alternately, when you pull people, they always tell you I'm inadequately trained. And so, you know, I think it's a carrot and a stick situation, right? Like if you approach this topic with imagination, you can attract talent in new ways. But if you don't, you're going to face mm-hmm. consequences on the negative side. And and I'm not really sure why we haven't advanced further because um, this <laughs> I feel like we talked about this for a long time. I, I agree. This is this is as old as the hills. I think it's one of those things that um, I think a few companies get right, and and a lot of them don't. And um, you know maybe that comes back to um, the HR group's ability to sell the value of this approach. Uh, you know, because when when you uh, sort of belly up to the bar at budget time, yeah, um, you've got to prove you're going to give me money and I'm going to give you some return for it. Right. And, you know, if HR can't, can't uh, articulate the return on training, the return on retention, the return on being a more open company and uh, going through more open channels to promote themselves, to attract talent. um, If they're not able to make those arguments, they're not going to get funding for it. So I, I think a lot of it comes back to an HR department's ability to, to sell the vision and to actually then go deliver on it. Well, the one thing I think can really help companies is realizing that it's not just a bidding war for talent. A lot of, I think Martin was making this point in our back channel chat a little bit, but a lot of folks, a lot of the best folks are not just thinking about, oh, I want to you know, hit the highest salary of any company. They're thinking about career growth and development and, and community and all these other things. And so, um, you know, thinking about how you can attract talent, it's not just a, something you throw money at. So uh, the question I want to ask on this, uh, because it did come up as part of a technology conference, and it came up as a way uh, for for success facts to show some thought leadership and also some differentiation on uh, you know what it is that they're bringing to the market. And and I guess the question I have is uh, you know you know there are we've talked about a lot uh, of 
of things that that we can do um, as an HR community to to make our processes better and to uh, with the eye towards uh, really uh, closing the gap on this so, so-called talent shortage. The the question I have is, do we really think that technology has a, a big role to play in that? Um, I do like where, six, uh, where success factors was going with the uh, you know trying to eliminate gender bias, but that is you know that's just one step. It t- it would take a huge commitment. Um, a lot of it with fundamental uh, changes to the way we do processes, uh, both just outside the system, but also inside our systems. If we really want to um, uh, uh, push our and influence the decision makers in order to uh, uh, via the technology for them to look to uh, other candidates and other pools and also you know promoting from within um, has to be addressed uh, as well as learning so there's lots and lots of uh, tentacles to that if you're really trying to use technology as a lever for that I just wanted to kind of get John's take on that and and I guess everybody else's as well right so I'll just comment quickly so other people can chime in but I I I agree I mean process is key but there are technology can play play a role too and uh, so, so one thing I think we can be looking towards is in the success factors world is is much better integration and much more seamless ability to cultivate, uh, you know, temporary talent as well as perm hires. And uh, I think essentially we need much more fluid tools if we're going to do this than we have now. Uh, so hopefully we'll see more of that in the years to come. I think that that's a great point, John. And I think um, you know, being able to take advantage of a lot of these tools from success factors or really any vendor. I think part of that's driven by the role of culture within a company and within the HR group, too. Um, I think that um, you, you have to have leaders who have the, a vision to um, adopt the tools. And uh, Brandon, like you said, there's a lot of process change in some cases, too. Um, you know, some of that can be very difficult, uh, particularly in bigger and older companies. So you have to have someone with the vision to go out there and, and drive it too. It doesn't it doesn't happen on its own. Sharon, like you said, you saw how many quals catalogs that were put together and then abandoned. Mm-hmm. So it it takes more than having the technology yep. there. You have to have the culture and the processes in place to make it work. There's also an interesting thing around expanding beyond contingent labor, even to look at things like hackathons, crowdsourcing into into the point around tools. Uh, talent platforms um, where you can start to source projects inter- externally. Um, there was a great example the American Cancer Society talked about how they're using crowdsourcing for quality as- assurance and user experience feedback. And it's all about getting creative about uh, talent, creating competitions and such. And I imagine for them, that's just a really, really great way of also figuring out who the best people to hire are, right? Because one of the biggest problems with hiring was always hiring people without really kind of hiring them without having any experience. And so these kinds of platforms can really kind of give people sort of a test run as well. It's not quite try before you buy, but you at least get to see some feedback before you purchase the talent, right? Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. We do some development in-house, and when we were looking for UI5 developers, well, actually support for our internal team a few years ago, uh, one of our, our technical lead connected with some folks on some some technology bulletin board. And um, we've ended up with a couple of resources now in Argentina who live in a small village. They work out of one of the guy's bedrooms and they use uh, Slack for collaboration. But they're now an integral part of our development team. 
So I, I think that kind of networking, um, you know, looking outside of traditional ways of sourcing talent is is very valuable these days. So Sharon, when when you did that, did you have any concerns in in approaching that, or um, I mean, what were your concerns, or was it pretty pretty simple? It was it was pretty simple mm-hmm. actually. You know, our technical lead had been looking for some answers, had posted some questions, and um, had responses consistently from a gentleman in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to him and said, you know, we need a little bit of work done right here. Are you interested? And um, that that uh, collaboration now has has grown. So we've got a small office in Grand Rapids, a bedroom office, I guess, in Argentina. <laughs> they are contingent. <laughs> and then our office is here in Chicago, all collaborating on these, these solutions. Well, that's a great now. story. That's good. Yeah. Well, and a really cool aspect of that, right, is all the collaboration tools, again, back to the technology that are now available to make that work. I mean, I don't know if all of you guys have used Slack, but I've I've done a bunch of projects on Slack with different clients and and, and also community projects. And, and the tools are really there now to to enable that kind of collaboration across borders and boundaries. Yeah, I haven't used it myself, but I know that the developers on our team really like it mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's a it's a great tool. Also, um, it um, yeah, I think the the adoption there, and I I know I harp on culture, but um, I've had some customers who use it and love it, and I have other customers who really have a fear of open source because they have this fear of losing trade secrets and security breaches and things like that. So, um, it, it's um, you know, different customers are going to have different. I think boundaries and limitations on that. I do see that changing mm-hmm. though, Steve. I think when we were talking about, we had a, a podcast a while back on, on SAP Jam. Yeah. And um, I know that, you know, one of one of the topics we brought up was not only the need for sponsorship, but the need for the communications organization or legal to approve that use, particularly as you start to look in more regulated industries. I still yep. remember, I probably used yep. this last time, one of my customers saying, I don't want someone learning how to build a knee joint on some social collaboration <laughs> tool. <laughs> but I will say that our life sciences customers are more and more embracing SAP Jam or other similar collaboration mm-hmm. solutions. And we're seeing it more and more. It's just understanding them better and putting those parameters around how and when and where they're used. Mm-hmm. Well, and and to the point around SAP Jam, I did a piece on SAP Jam Slack announcement and how SAP Jam has been able to offer sort of enterprise-grade uh, uh, capabilities that a lot of folks might need around security and authorizations and and validated integrations and such, so that you know not every company can run wild with with kind of rogue software. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's been a lot of progress in terms of being able to formalize that even within an SAP environment. So that really puts pressure on companies to not use those those. That is an excuse not to not to try these types of collaborations. Mm-hmm. The other uh, point I wanted to make, and just kick it out to you guys on this, is that there there is this issue around that uh, came up early in the podcast around um, you know people who are maybe not quite ready to take on certain roles, and and they need they essentially need some help to get there. And there's a lot of organizations that companies can now partner with that can help with that. Uh, I've, I did a piece on Girls Who Code, which is a really terrific initiative that gets girls involved in in development projects. And they've teamed up with numerous uh, employers in, and, and uh, I think other school programs to sort of help 
sort of figure out, okay, structured internships, what, what kind of things you need these folks to know before they enter your workforce. SAP's done a lot of great stuff on aut- autistic workers and, uh, and, and figured out how to get some of these autistic workers who, who have exceptional talent in certain areas ready for the workforce. There's another really cool program called Year Up, which, which also does something similar to Girls Who Code, but with more like urban students and helping them land internships. And so I think if companies are serious about this, partnering with local universities and programs like this can really help fill the gap. There's tons of these types of programs, and, and they do go the extra mile to try to make sure that when someone hits your site, they're familiar with the kinds of priorities that you have, so you're not just taking a chance on someone. It's a structured mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of the uh, with the SAP University Alliance, John, where you know um, SAP had these alliances with universities. You could go and you could learn all about the SAP system for college credit. And, uh, you know, I had a few customers who did that. And it's, that's an example of, you know, a training program that people could go through to, um, you know, be prepared, right? There's a, a lot of opportunities now. And, and with the massively online, open open online courses, right? Um, SAP has a number of those. And there's all kinds of those things out there. There are a lot of opportunities. Um, but how, how well do employers receive that sort of experience? Well, I think some of the people on the call can probably answer this better than me, but but I think it really depends. You you, you do have to have a structured mm-hmm. program in place, right? If you don't if you don't know how to incorporate, for example, younger interns into into your processes, then it might be difficult, right? Because a lot of these programs may not crank out the fully polished professional that you're used to hiring. Uh, the whole point is that this talent might be a little bit raw when they come mm-hmm. in, but they're, but they're not untrained, right? Yeah. So essentially you need, you need kind of a structured program and, and some understanding of how you get from point A to point B. And I always view that as a competitive advantage with the companies that I worked in where I, I, I took it as a point of pride that I could take someone who was a little raw in talent and bring them along. But there does need to be a structured process for how that takes place, including the proper reviews and fail-safes. Um, you know, so that you don't find yourself in too deep with with a situation you can't manage. And and that that's a great point. Um, I, I've seen that with companies. Um, I've even had that sort of approach on projects, John, where um, I would start a an SAP project, and I would get people on the project from the customer who were very bright, lots of good experience, but they didn't have the SAP experience yet. You know, they had gone through some training classes from SAP. And so one of the things, one of my primary roles on the project was to get them up to speed on uh, SAP, HR, benefits, payroll, that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, they had the right thinking. They had the basic skills. And then, um, you know, to the customer's credit, instead of just using um, our team of consultants as someone to come and just sort of drop the system in place, we educated our customers and the customers dropped the system in place. So, um, but like you said, without that structured sort of training, you really can't do that. I've, I've seen too many cases where uh, companies have put people in the role of supporting a, a system or uh, doing a rollout um, and they've never been trained on it and they've never had any mentors on it. And they struggle, and you know they often end up with something that's really subpar, which is uh, really unfortunate. But unfortunately, I've seen that happen a lot. Yeah, one of the things that 
was more common with on-premise implementations was during the proposal process really talking about how the customer wanted knowledge transfer to mm-hmm. take place. And a lot of our companies that we worked with that had been working with SAP for a while wanted to put in place something where their team was doing the configuration with our team supporting it with an understanding that there was going to be more investment from a time perspective up front. You know, you've got someone sitting next to someone, talking them through it, making sure things are getting documented, answering questions. That takes more time than having an expert go in and just configure the system. But those are the organizations where we left with really self-sufficient um, folks on board. And even with uh, cloud implementations, you know, with success factors, we've had some success with some of our organizations where we've really put in place um, processes to support them rolling additional locales, for example, from a learning management system perspective out on their own. And they they engage us for spot or ad hoc support as needed. But their team, once they've got that initial site completed, go and do the rest of it themselves to the extent Mm -hmm. that they can. So, I mean, investing in that, while it takes more time and dollars and commitment up front, definitely makes organizations much more enabled in terms of continuing with that. Yeah, I, I found that um, those those projects and those efforts tend to be more successful uh, mm-hmm. long term. And uh, you know, when we're looking at software like this, I think long term success is what we want to shoot for. Martin is unusually quiet, given that training is his passion. I'm starting to get worried. <laughs> I'm there. I'm, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot to say. And I don't think we'll have enough in one hour, but. There's also a lot of parameters that maybe we are, if not neglecting, we are putting maybe not up front, but the whole thing is changing quite dramatically. I mean, just align with SAP training strategies, the learning hubs, the millenniums, all the, those people, you know, mangling together. And I trust there's also a need currently with the mess that we have with the market, with the economy. We have more and more demand to have standards. I think Sharon mentioned that earlier in the call. Um, for Sabra Canox slave, for FDA, for whatever, you know, uh, ruling that we need to have as customers, etc. So today, it's always a fact that maybe uh, training and uh, the budget is neglected, but there are so many ways we can actually learn of the record or for the record online. And I trust today the primary issue, it's not so much the money, of course it is, but it's primarily the time. I mean, look at ourselves when we started to learn on-premise 20 years, 25 years ago. It was easy. We had two huge PDFs. Nothing was online. There was no Google, and it was the end of the, the, end of the journey. Today, when, when, when we have kids in my classroom asking me, where do I start? I mean, the, the task is just huge. So it's really what, we, what, what you guys underline. We need to have a strategy. We need to have a development plan. We need to have maybe... A, some helicopter overview on the different uh, milestones, the uh, threshold that people need to actually reach before they move to different positions. And then, of course, like Sharon mentioned with the catalog of qualification, mm-hmm. it's actually the all-embedded HR suite, succession planning, you know, training, development plan, compensation, etc. One, one thing I would say about, about um, success factors versus on-premise is that I like the fact that there is a lot more um, formalized structure to getting the customer up to speed, whereas before it was left to the consultants to you know come up with a plan and um, transition the knowledge and maybe bring in in-house uh, developers as well as consultant developers. 
um, you know, with a project team orientation and and the checklist of things that they need to know and they need to they need to bring to the table. And the actual process itself, I think, is I, I don't know if anybody would disagree with that, but it seems like it's it's a there's a lot there's a huge amount like uh, like Martin said more content, but more also more of a formalized process for for getting get for making customers self sufficient. I would say. There is a saying, if you listen to one of the SAP mentors from uh, Ingo Ilgoford, he mentioned once, um, I think he was laughing, but not so much. He says, there's not too much information. There's only poor filters. And that's where maybe the added value from HR can actually come from, is to establish the proper filter for the proper career path and the proper uh, aspiration that you will have as an individual. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to become within the organization, within the community? So based on that, we can actually keep moving and, you know, get to that ladder, get to those thresholds that we mentioned. Yeah, I think I think the key is balancing that with the flexibility that that workers who may be newer to the workforce, the millennials, as, as Amy said, I hate to use that term all the time, <laughs> are looking for. You know, they, they don't always just want that step by step by step. They're used to the opportunity to explore different kinds of information. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think to Mark's point about empowering customers, when I look at the Success Factors community boards, at least within Validated Learning, which is the one I tend to follow, there's an awful lot of customer knowledge sharing um, and um, just knowledge sharing, I guess, amongst customers that I never really saw from a customer perspective within SAP's communities. You know, developers, they always have had their little chat areas, but the business users haven't been as involved as what I see. Mm-hmm. And Martin, to your point, one of the interesting things at Success Connect that I didn't get to write about very much, but I wanted to get into was the shift to continuous performance management over what is perceived as kind of an archaic, you know, sit down once a year, uh, which is oftentimes not nearly enough to really identify you know, why things are going well or not well for an individual. And mm-hmm. the only thing I worry about with continuous performance management is that it might feel punitive in some companies. It's like, uh, you know, uh, we have to sit down again. We have to, you know, it's like it could feel almost like you're getting graded all the time. But I think done properly, uh, the software could support, a, yeah. like we're saying, kind of a more holistic or organic process, you know, where where you're able to sort of, work with people who are used to more flexible approaches where they might shift uh, roles or responsibilities more often or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the continuous performance management, John is, is a, is a great idea. And, you know, um, if you give me feedback three times a year, then I should be able to improve faster. Right. If I only get the feedback, the form- formal feedback once a year, then, you know, I'm going a whole year without that sort of feedback. Um, w- when I've talked with customer, customers about this, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh my gosh, you, you're saying I have to do performance reviews three times a year now? And, you know, they equate it with that dreaded annual performance review. And, and right. it's really different. It's really different. And it takes a while for people to understand that, I think. But I, I do think the culture is changing. I, I remember back in, it was probably 2009, 2010. It was when, when SAP was starting the whole on-demand, you know, the first... Yeah. First, look at cloud performance management with Prashanth. And Prashanth spent an afternoon with me and one of my colleagues talking about his performance management process and giving people badges. And I was sitting there thinking, none of my customers are ever going to do this. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't think that anymore. And it's only, that's five or six years ago. Yeah. You know, it's, it's changing rapidly and I think it's continuing to change. It's a good change. Yeah. Yeah. Good change, but also we're going to the unknown. Earlier this week in Belgium, they announced that a, a major company was actually dropping the performance review. It was too time-consuming, costing too much money from managers' time. So they're actually also revisiting. And I think that's one of the key information that also comes up from uh, conferences like S-Connect is we have to reinvent HR and not only, you know, carry on with the model that were there, but they're a bit different because of the technology. Mm -hmm. So it's also an ongoing change for a better or a worse, I don't know, Sam will tell, but the uh, change is ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I think my personal view is performance management needs a serious reinvention, to your point, Martin. Uh, but I think one of the changes would need to be just a much more kind of regular form of dialogue or checking in, whatever that might be. Um, the one thing I wanted to throw in, I assume we can't talk forever today, but I just, just wanted to throw <laughs> – just, I mean, I'm happy to talk this whole afternoon if you guys want to just keep going. But <laughs> this, I also just kind of wanted to throw in some of my fears and concerns around uh, so, so-called sort of the predictive aspects and the machine learning. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have to be really careful about these so-called algorithms that automate things and perhaps make the situation worse in some cases. Um, I, mm -hmm. I am I am encouraged that SAP has really thought about this with this business without bias and the the way they're approaching the the job orders that we referred to that you guys talked about last time. But Brian Summers has been doing a lot of stuff on Diginomic on this. I did a podcast with him, but he's he spends a lot of time in HR and he's really worried about the state of HR analytics because he's concerned that the predictive models are going to essentially create correlations that reinforce you know, tunnel vision hiring. So, for example, if there's a 92% correlation between a certain factor and retention, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean everyone with those factors is, is going to be a, you know, a fit or not. And, and his concern is that some of the best hires aren't really going to fit these sort of predefined sort of demographics that are pulled into these predictive algorithms. Mm -hmm. And so I do think it's something we, we just need to be aware of, that some, sometimes these nifty ways of automating and predicting certain tendencies actually don't work in our favor when it comes to topics. Yeah, I think you always have to keep an eye on the algorithms, John. That, that's a great point. Um, you know, correlation and causation, two different things. One of the best things I learned in my college statistics class, but served me, it served me well. Um, but yeah, the algorithms are great. I, it's Machine learning has um, a ton of benefit, I think. Um, but I think it, at the same time, we're, we're not quite um, there yet. And, you know, as far as having our, our arms all around it and being able to uh, use it as a, as a really good tool. It's uh, still pretty leading edge. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is going to come out right or not, but I'm not sure that what, as an organization, you should always be looking for is that long-term hire. I mean, sometimes somebody's a perfect hire for the perfect time, mm -hmm. um, but they may leave in three years, and that might be absolutely the right thing for your organization and absolutely the right thing for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are so many other things as an organization that's hiring that you want to look look at. And sometimes as you talk to people, you may come up with things that, that might not have been there on that original job description mm -hmm. that you recognize as have, having brought value in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, um, I'm going to wrap this up here. We've been going for a while, and I don't want to um, 
go too long for our podcast listeners. John, it's been great having you on the podcast finally, and uh, hopefully we can do this again in the not-too-distant future. But thanks, thanks for your time and, and, and for all your uh, perspective on this. Oh, thank you. I learned a lot from you guys. It was always uh, something I was looking forward to, so now I can cross this off my list. <laughs> awesome. Good, good. Well, um, and to the whole podcast team, everyone, thanks for uh, all your perspective and input on this. Uh, just want to remind our listeners that you can download the podcast at uh, SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search for SAP HCM Insights. Um, you can also uh, see all the podcasts and leave us comments on the site at insightcp.com slash insights. That's kind of the, the hub for all of this. Um, give us your feedback. Let us know what you want to hear about, and uh, we appreciate it. So thanks for the time, everyone, and uh, we'll see you again on a podcast shortly. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.